Hello and welcome to Spookbox, the only podcast where three housemates do a cost-benefit analysis of cult death sacrifices to the sun. This week, <laughs> as always, I'm joined by Connor. Hello. And Daph. Hi, Spookboxes. And we're looking at 2019's Midsummer by Ari Aster, a movie about a neo-pagan summer festival in contemporary Sweden, death and contaminated pies. Before we dive into a plot summary, I'm going to ask you to listen to your intuition in the style of the Horga cult and tell me, what genre is this movie? Oh my god, we're not going for general <laughs> going, opinions first? We're going straight into what do we think this film is? That's a well, big that, question. That is a general opinion, but through intuition. I don't have intuition. Uh-oh. Uh, I don't think we'll be able to get you some in time for <laughs> this podcast. Get on AliExpress. I intuit that... It's a horror film, but it's a subversive horror film. Okay. And I think right. that's fine. Subversive horror. Yes, I think mm. so. Yeah, I can go into that, but we'll, we'll Sorry, save it. I mean, I'm not asking whether you guys like it or not, because of course you do. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I figured. Sure. Yeah, so Absolutely. It's a, so it's a subversive horror yes, I on think one so. side. Yes. On the other side? It's a, it's a romance. It's a romance. It's a, it's a romance, completely, 100%. Um, no, I, I don't know. Uh, is it? I've, I've been really struggling with this since I saw it in the cinema. I told really good friends of mine to go see the film, and they reported back the same thing. Every friend I told to go see it came back and said, yeah, I liked it, but it wasn't scary. This is exactly the same thing that I've seen. So I was doing some research for this. Nice. And a lot of the detractors of the film just say, it's the same with any film. It's the same when you tell, when probably the same when Blair Witch came out mm -hmm. or sort of some of these other pivotal horror films. Some people just don't think they're scary and therefore not really worth the time of day. I don't I'm think. scared by the idea of someone who isn't scared by Blair Witch Project. Mm -hmm. Like, who is that person? I want to meet yeah. them. Like, they're terrifying to me. But That's think, up awfully scary film to a degree i think it's this, i mean people also said about the shining that they didn't th like if you watch what? the shining now people don't think it's scary i mean i don't think people thought it was scary at the time either a lot of people didn't anyway i but have like this feeling about some oh, sorry man sorry didn't mean to cut you off no, um, what were you saying? i i have this feeling about certain films certain like psychological horrors and i saw what do you call it um not psycho the hitchcock one where he's looking out the window Rear, rear, window. rear window. That's the one. Yeah. Um, and so he's looking out the window and sees all the things and thinks it might be a murder, but it's playing with whether it could be a murder or if he's just paranoid, but then finds out that it actually is a murder. And I remember watching the film and going, ha ha, oh, brilliant. What a, what a laugh. What a farce. And then it was only when a friend of mine turned around and went, do you not get why it's scary? And I was like, no, it's not scary at all. And I'm like, it is scary. It's scary because he was right. There was a murder going on. Yeah. You could be looking out at anybody and you, you might be looking at a potential murderer. You know, every human being is a, is a psychopath. And, you know, the same sort of thing happened with Perfect Blue last week where, you know, I had convinced myself that, you know, being a, you know, being stalked is a terrible thing to happen. And then, you know, we sort of dropped that bomb that, it, you know, there, there are worse things under the sun, you know. So mm -hmm. I don't think I was answerable to anyone last week. I was deeply menstruating and <laughs> I had a, a, On theme. a mad track, like Charlie so from Always Sunny yeah. uh, pinboard up about what stalkers mean in 2020. And um, I've now taken that pinboard down. Oh, amazing. And I'm recovering from my madcap theories. But you know, though, is this film, is this film a horror? Um, I, I'm tempted. I think it's actually working at a different level. I think this film isn't 
just a subversive horror i feel like i'm now just like i'm now just trying to one-up you like no go for it please do <laughs> is it Fuck it's not up. just <laughs> it's not just a subversive horror i think this is a film that uses elements of the horror genre to uh, be uh, to, to end to the ends of humor or to the ends of uh, some maybe maybe philosophical thought or some kind of gag about modern anthropology or something honestly i i think it's a very dark comedy yeah and i and i would agree with that but i think my understanding of what a subversive horror film would be was, uh. would be that um i feel like there's a lot in this film that um, comes from horror. It draws from horror, I think. Right. So it draws from this fascination with cults, this fascination with paganism, and in sort of the folk horror films like The Wicker Man or The Borderlines, I think is what it was called, mm. um, the cult is always uh, the villain. Right. But the thing with this film is that the cult is still sort of the villain. It is still killing people. But we're being asked as an audience to... We we get something that we don't usually get in other horror films. That is in that we um, we're privy to the motivations. I think yes. of the villain, and yeah. I think so. I was I was saying the other day, it's like um, it's a Freddy, it's a Friday the Thirteenth film. If from the point of view of Jason, almost, <laughs> All right. it's like we're we're being asked to understand where they're coming from, and to yes. a degree that. That that sort of makes made me very conflicted anyway, because it made me question, um, the sort of what how how different societies view death, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so we were just chatting about this earlier. I think that comes down to sort of I I've been all over the block with this film, trying to think about what it means and how much I like it. Because when I first saw it, absolutely adored it. Told everyone I knew to go see it. Now mm -hmm. I've seen it three times. Quick note, none of us have seen the director's cut, right? No. Is that that is widely available though? Apparently right? it's widely Apparently available. Apparently it's out there. There are trailers online anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, from where we get our films from, mm -hmm. the reputable source that mm -hmm. gives us all our films. Absolutely. You there's wouldn't a... download a car. <laughs> Mate, yes, I would. There's a, there's a, there's a magical, <laughs> yes, mystical <laughs> video shop around the corner that's somehow still open. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the blockbuster of the internet. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't have it, so we, we haven't seen the director's cut, um, but you know, I do know that there's still some scenes that were missing in it that were that were in the trailer. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I've been trying to think about what the film might mean in sort of grand terms. But yeah, I've I've come down on on it into this one, you know, concrete reading that I hopefully hopefully it'll come up naturally throughout the questions. Yeah, but, we're going to return to Hodder. We're going to return mm. to Ari Aster and what his intentions were. We're going to return to. America and Sweden. We're going to get down to all of those details. Ooh. But first, should we do a plot summary? Love a plot summary. Okay. Um, so, Danny, played by Florence Pugh, is a college student grieving her sister's murder-suicide with her parents, relying on her reluctant and myopic boyfriend Christian and their already strained relationship for support. Christian and fellow anthropology grad student pals Josh and Mark are invited to Sweden for a special midsummer celebration by their friend Pelle. Unable to leave Danny out of obligation to her and her recent tragic loss, Christian brings her along. A 
Upon arriving at the rural Herga cult in Sweden, the sun hardly sets, people wear all white and psychedelic mushrooms are on offer. The group meet fellow outsiders Connie and Simon, who have travelled from London upon a similar invite from Ingmar, Pelle's communal brother. They collectively witness the first Hurga ritual, where two elders commit suicide by leaping off a cliff top. Horrified, Connie and Simon try to leave, but bizarrely, Connie is told Simon has already left without her when she goes to collect her bags. Then, Danny fights hallucinations of the tragic deaths of her sister and parents. Meanwhile, Christian is focused on the question of his thesis and decides to do it on the Horga, copying Josh and causing a rift between the two. Christian eats a pie spiked with cult member Maya's pubic hair. Mark accidentally pees on a Horga ancestral tree, inciting the fury of the cult, and then is lured off by a female cult member at dinner. At night, Josh sneaks to the temple to photograph the cult's sacred text when he sees a nude man wearing Mark's skinned face and is hit over the head, after which his body is dragged away. The next day, Danny is led by female members of the cult into a maple dancing competition. Trance-like, Danny wins and is crowned as the esteemed May Queen. Christian is coerced into taking more drugs before a sex rite designed to impregnate Maya while other naked female cultists sing and watch. After discovering Christian with Maya, Danny has a panic attack and the Horga women wail with her empathetically. A shocked and disorientated Christian then runs off, discovering Josh's leg and then Simon, who has been ritually dismembered as a blood eagle. More on that later. Christian is then paralysed by an elder. The cult explains that to purge the commune of its evil, nine human sacrifices must be offered. The first four victims are outsiders lured to them by the insight of Pele and Ingmar. Josh, Mark, Connie and Simon. The next four victims are cult members, two sacrificed elders, the participants of the cliff death, and two volunteers, Ingmar and Ulf. As May Queen, Danny must choose the ninth and final victim, either Christian or a villager. She chooses to sacrifice Christian. Still paralysed, he is stuffed into a disemboweled bear and placed in a temple alongside the other sacrifices. The temple is set on fire and the cult celebrates. At first, Danny sobs in horror, but gradually smiles. So that is our plot summary, guys. Mm -hmm. um, what an ending. Well, should we turn to the question of genre, which we've touched upon a little. I was reading about what Ari Aster said about the film. Initially, he was pitched it by a Swedish production company and it was a simple cult horror film. And after experiencing a breakup himself, he decided to rewrite the script mm -hmm. with the breakup element part of it. So he describes Midsummer as a breakup movie dressed in the clothes of a folk horror film. So what do you think is achieved in the breakup genre by dragging up his movie as horror? A breakup movie? Absolutely it is. Yeah. What? He's, he's, he's quite elusive in interviews. So I watched one just before we started recording. And I think one of the things that he is, in all of his interviews, he seems adamant that it is a breakup movie. That's hilarious. What's a breakup movie? Um, I mean, in this context, I think a breakup movie is... No, 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 like, what? Well, Name one. Was, okay, well, okay, breakup movie, uh, The Breakup. 
How's I've that? never seen it. What happens in the? Well, I guess people break up in the breakup. Is I'm there a famous a blank on one? These. Uh, uh, I mean, breakup movies. I think go in hand and go hand in hand with romantic comedy films. Right, right, right. There's so usually a breakup in them. A yeah. lot of breakups happen in them. Yes. I don't think we need the, five hundred days of summer. The con- yeah, that's a breakup. Perfect. Five hundred days of we summer. Don't, we don't need that's the conclusion a to be, you know, them together or apart. But breaking up takes place in the in the main. Part of the film. I think as long as it involves some kind of processing of a breakup. Who would die in 500 Days of Summer if we did a horror version of 500 Days of Summer? Probably, or- I think Gordon Levitt would have to go. <laughs> it is to do Sorry. with summer, midsummer, like. Oh my god. Ritual. 500 he Days of Midsummer. <laughs> like, I think summer gets sacrificed in 500 days, but I'm okay with that because she's not really a full character. So. No, that's a good point, yeah. That doesn't really count as a sacrifice um, then. Okay, so now we know what a breakup movie is. Um, yeah, do we gain anything from this being a breakup film dressed up as a horror film? For example, I think that the visceral discomfort and pain you can feel from some of the scenes in the movie kind of allow you to embody this, the feeling of a, a breakup. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you you experience physical pain. I mean, people have been known to like die of heartbreak, that yeah. kind of thing. So the way that the horror genre manipulates your emotion yeah. and your mood is maybe a really good tool to be available to the director when they're putting forward a breakup film. I think what do you of, think? I think one of the things that you go through when, when, when you have a real life breakup is that you do seek community, I guess. Yeah. One of the things that helps you process And is, you seek the new, as scary as it might be, yeah. like yeah, yeah, change yeah. has to take place. I think that so. maybe that's the dark comedy element, really, is that if she's going through a failed, if Danny is going through a failed relationship with Christian, mm-hmm. uh, it takes... A friendship group to help her realize that she's okay by yeah. herself. It just so happens that the community that she's found happens to be a death cult. Yeah. Right? Who isn't? Who isn't these days, right? <laughs> Everyone's got their quirks. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think that's the dark comedy element playing in, in all of this. Yeah. And it just so happens to be a sort of folk horror so setting, I think. There's a couple of things that annoy me about that. The first one is um, at the beginning of the movie, we see that Danny does have a friend. That's right. She's on the phone to a friend. But I think that that speaks to like contemporary American culture or millennial culture where yes, she has a friend, but the friend isn't physically present with her. The comfort takes place over the phone. And even the fact that it's a phone call is kind of weird. Like, you know, that's quite intimate for (laughs) for our generation. What's that mean? I'm like, wow. So (laughs) she was so ready for that. Does she talk on the phone? I don't remember this bit. Does she she talk on the phone? phone. Do we hear the voice of the other person? freak. Oh, Um, I don't think so. um, We don't hear Christian's voice on the phone. No, she's talking to her friend for sure because she complains about Christian. Do you hear Christian's voice on the phone at the beginning phone call? And I remember this because... uh, like that. <laughs> that would be great if he sounded like um. What, what were those adults from Peanuts? <laughs> what was the name of those little things? The little pink dudes that lived on the moon. It's a, a it's clangers. A, clangers. The clangers. If Christian's voice was a clanger. Anyway, I'm sorry. Really scared. She's really, she's really acting. <laughs> You just please stop doing that voice. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. We definitely hear Christian's voice. Um, and I remember this because uh, Christian um, responds to Danny saying, I love you. 
by like exhaling his oh, vape. Oh, yeah, completely right. Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah, she says it twice, and the first time he goes, okay. "I love you," and then she says it a second time, and he's like, "Okay." <laughs> As they're hanging up. <laughs> like, so that's the thing. Yeah, so this is a breakup movie, I guess. Um, and the thing is, Christian is painted as a total douche. Mm-hmm. But in the director's cut, it's like he's... Oh, no, no, no. In the theatrical cut, he's like more... He's just a douche, you know? Mm-hmm. He's just like kind of a, you know, an asshole because he's he's really schlubby. He doesn't, he, he doesn't care, but... He's out of his depth, but his depth isn't very deep. He's out of his depth, but yep. he's a shallow person yep. in the first place, you know, mm-hmm. but, but he's not a bad person, mm-hmm. you know, he just is, he's just a, well, he is a bad person because he's so mediocre. Yeah. If you know what I, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas what I've heard is that in the director's cut, it becomes more clear that he is like intentionally a jerk, that there's some more scenes where he is like gaslighting mm, Danny. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I read about that. Like, I read that he comes across as, like, a gaslighter, but I don't think we get that from the main release. And like, I think we should restrict our conversation to yeah. the main release. You yeah, know what sure. I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. what I heard was that when Astor saw the theatrical cut, he was like, oh, my movie's too long. <laughs> like, I don't need all of the stuff I thought I needed. Like, this actually works. It's interesting that he maybe leaned more heavily on the breakup moments than his cut. Because that was his interest in making the movie. Yeah. Perhaps, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think, for me, I don't really like it as a breakup movie. Because, to me, it's less about Danny's relationship with this schlubby dude Christian. And more about her relationship to death mm-hmm. you know her her relationship to the death of her parents and the death of her sister i think that is a really good point like you know she's became an orphan and she's having to process what family means yeah and in a previous context like christian would have been her proto family you know he was the next person she could turn to after her family died but he doesn't prove to be capable of that so it's about seeking that kind of belonging. Like we all go out there and try to make our own family, but I've just done what I always do on this goddamn show, which is that I'll start talking about something. I'll get my point out there and then I'll realize that I don't believe what I just said. Um, You don't believe it's about her relationship with Dan? No, no, I do. I I definitely do. But what I've just realized is that 500 days of summer has nothing to do it's with... It's a hotter film. <laughs> yeah, we we need to make 500 Days of Midsummer. Like, we need to have, like... Uh, we'll start a sort of comedy YouTube channel where we edit, <laughs> we re-edit trailers. What How's that? What you got and it might be hot. Anyway, uh, no, what I've realised is that 500 Days of Summer is, you know, has a greater depth to it, you know, or more I've remembered that it has that greater depth to it. It's more about him coming to terms with... Um, you know his aspirations because he you know he's an art, he's a trained architect or something. I think I, it's been a very long time since I've seen it, but that rings a bell. Or yeah. he he wanted to become an architect at some point, but then he just started working in greetings cards, and then at the end of the film, he decides to go back and finish becoming an architect or whatever. Oh, white people problems. <laughs> uh, and then he meets that he meets a girl at the end of the movie called like autumn or spring or Does something he? yeah he's oh. like hey what's your name my name's autumn and i was like no I does he look like... in the camera like sort of yes kevin from home alone 
<laughs> to, bring it, to bring it back to Christian, like he's a very lukewarm person. Like he doesn't have a lot of individuality. He doesn't know what his thesis is going to be. No. He's constantly he's affirmed by all of his bros around mm -hmm. him, like telling him what to do. And I think that in like contemporary American culture, that's a very unattractive thing because you know, it's not really accepted that you wouldn't be an individual. You are forced to be an individual. And when people are forced to be an individual by their context, they are a bit of a sham person. Like he just isn't a very individualistic person. No. He doesn't have a lot about him. And in the context of the Harga, that would be totally fine. But in America, he's like, it, it turns him into a bit of a monster almost like. Whoa. Or just sort of inept. I guess. Yeah. You think but, he would fit in with the Harga? I think that there's like a cultural contrast there. Like somebody like Christian is eaten alive by the like pressures to be individualistic and, and mm. important because he really wants to have the best thesis. He wants to have all the girls that he can. He feels tied down by Danny. Like he wants, you know, just excess and he wants to be important. As opposed to just being grateful for what he has and living a bit of a simpler life. He wants to be more I mean? empathetic, I guess, as well. Yeah, he doesn't have empathy, so mm -hmm. he's yeah. a very like individualistic person. You see, that's the thing. So he doesn't have empathy. So that's why, mm -hmm. like, so you're right. He's not an individualistic person. So that's why he makes it like second to last. Do you know what I mean? Like, what do you mean? So you know, if like he's the second last one. Well, he nearly survives. He nearly survives. Do you see what I mean? Like he nearly does fit in with the Harga. If he had just mm. been a bit more open, like, if he'd been a bit more open as a person, like maybe Danny would have said, like, right, I don't want to date you anymore. Oh my god, our postman always delivers when we're recording a podcast. I think we should invite our postman on to the this podcast is, this next week. This needs to become week. a new segment, you know? What's okay. the postman What's brought? in the mail? Okay, quick pause, everyone. <laughs> Fill up your coffee cup. Let's what is find in out. What's in the mail today? What's in the mail today? <laughs> Who is it for? It's probably a 70% chance that it's Connor. It's always for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, okay. Actually, what's weird is today we are getting a parcel from Finland. So, you know, we're oh bringing... Oh my god, we're all bringing... those northern countries are just the same, right? <laughs> we're bringing, you know, Scandinavian energy in, although I know Finland isn't part of Scandinavia. Um, now, that's a really interesting point, because, yeah, okay, so again, this is this contrast between, like, director's cut and theatrical cut Christian, like... Um, He's a worse guy in the, like, proto version of the film. Exactly, but mm. in the film that was actually released, you know... I, I feel like in the film that was that was released, you, we we don't see, um, we we don't see Danny's decision to s sacrifice Christian as um, an like an act of revenge necessarily. Instead, we see Danny makes the decision to kill Christian. I feel in the theatrical release as kind of a, a, a bringing on catharsis, as as in like. Christian, you're the last remnant of my old life here. Mm -hmm. I'm okay to let you go. Especially in the context of the cult leader saying, you know, we, we do this to purge evil. Like we, it's an honoring to the sun, but we also, the bear figure is symbolic of evil yeah. and treating on their community. So they burn someone in the bear costume to, 
to kind of symbolically purge evil from the community. So in that context, Danny is looking at the last remnants of her old life. You know, Christian even ties into her family and their death. He was the one that was there after she found out. So all of that that has happened to her, she can just cut her past right off. So it's definitely like a sort of catharsis, a purging when she kills him. You could read it as revenge, but I see it more in that light too. But think, see, that's why I think it is sort of a breakup movie because in a lot of breakup movies, um, the breakup happens and the realization of the main character at the end is that they didn't actually need the relationship in the first place. Yeah. And what they needed to do was just sort of rebirth themselves. People yeah. also burn objects to do with their ex a lot. Mm -hmm. Like in Friends, they have to get the fire brigade out because they accidentally start a fire trying to burn, I'm pretty sure it's Monica's ex's stuff. I think okay. the three of them all have The three have of them and they're in, in wedding dresses. Yeah. And that makes me think of Midsummer because she's wearing the big flurry dress and she's literally burning her ex. Like, Friends, I think that days of summer. Americans have tried to make like their own like contemporary ritual and one of them I feel like it is burning your ex's stuff so she burns her ex that's kind of funny <laughs> that's kind of funny yeah. um I wanted to then talk about like the fact that this movie is a co-production between Sweden and the US mm -hmm. and what do you think the film says about both cultures or either culture the way that I've seen it received in Sweden is it ranges from the fact that it's offensive and exoticizing Sweden and to the fact that the accents were rendered quite well. I mean, hmm. and the dialect. What what does everyone think? Obviously, this is a very fantastical version of a cult. Mm. But do you think that there's anything bigger to be said about American culture or potentially Swedish culture? And, and those two interacting. Well, so one of, the, one of the first things that I thought about when I thought about the fact that this was based in Sweden, mm -hmm. an American and Swedish production, um, was that how often do we really see Sweden in the, in the, as, as the setting of a folk horror film? I don't think very often. Not usually... very often. There's another film which is really good. You should check it out called The Ritual. Yeah, you're right. Which is on I've Netflix. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. I'm pretty sure that's set on a hiking trip to Sweden. But mm. it's a very rare thing. I agree. But I think as well, a lot of folk horror films we tend to see made in the UK. Yes. Or made exclusively in the US. And they specifically grapple almost with a sort of post-colonial context. Mm -hmm. They grapple with the idea that in the US context that their land is essentially stolen and that that, that land will eventually reclaim. And it's haunted in that yeah, sense. Yeah, and it's haunted. Um, in the UK, I think it's usually used sort of metaphorized to a certain extent. Um, the loss of sort of uh, pre-Christian um, ideas of community. Now, in this sense, this is a pre-Christian community, exactly. but, but think... one that has remained intact so there's not the yes. loss element is there the element of what if a little bit but i think one of the one of the interesting things about it is that um if in american folk horror films like I'm sort of drawing a blank on what that would be i mean i guess like the witch is sort of a folk horror film yeah um they always grapple with sort of the old world yeah um and in a sense because a lot of the pagan practices that the UK used to have 
are sort of borrowed from Nordic countries. Yeah. Usually. Um, correct me if I'm well, wrong. Well, Viking culture was, sure. was a pagan religion. Yeah. And, you know, what I've read about it is that it's really hard to find any kind of information on pre-Christian Scotland, at least, mm -hmm. other than what was actually Viking culture brought here. Yeah. So when we think about like pagan pre-Christian culture in Scotland, at least, it mm -hmm. is Viking culture. Right. So the thing I think we achieve from basing this in Sweden is that it makes the US seem all the more remote because this is sort of, because just as you're saying, it's intact, it's tied to an even further, past even further back. That's right. Right. There is no disruption in yeah. that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just, there's a couple of things like the thinking about Swedish culture. Um, hmm. So the, I know this is more Norwegian than Swedish, but there's a, a, a thing in Scandinavian culture in general of, you know, of, of things being just enough. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, so um, the guys in Edelvis, Norwegian, um, struggled with this a lot because they they had that international fame and then were asked like how do you feel about your international fame and they're like well it's you know Are you talking what, about what does the fox say uh, what the, what does the fox say what does the fox say? and the fox said you were okay with fame okay uh, but you know we're sure it'll pass over everybody and and, and the word know, in question I'm pretty sure it's a Swedish word it's legom I think that's it, right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, meaning what? London-based publishers have seized on this <laughs> to sell it to unhappy British people. Thank you again so, for telling us how to be happy. The bit that I found really funny in that regard then was there's a small part where the 72-year-olds are given torches before they're at the stupa, um, sign aside, mm -hmm. and they're the head of ceremonies says this is your flame this high no higher so like you have a flame and it's burning bright yeah but you raise it this high mm -hmm. and then you stop right whereas you know we get platitudes about americans in the movie like Pele says to Christian, oh, you're an American, just ram yourself in. There's the idea right. of you just being, in there. <laughs> being, you know, out of place, too much, abrasive, forceful, all yeah. of these qualities. Life is yours for the taking. To take, yeah. whereas the idea of balance is much more present in the Horga community. Absolutely. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. But then I think, again, this kind of returns to the kind of trolly pranky comedy kind of root of the movie where which we can't forget ah, mm. and where i think the whole thing is kind of a joke about u.s perceptions of european culture mm. like it ridicules how much they inflate and exoticize something that is seen as like pre-american almost right so it's like yeah. primitive you know, i mean it's yeah. like you know so there's that statistic about how uh how few americans actually travel abroad and the, the romanticization of europe as the old country as as you were saying mm -hmm. you know so then there's this idea of the imagination of like oh i wonder how different it is over there you know i wonder yeah. what they're like there's you know our, our savage ancestors you know so mm -hmm. i feel like it's it's kind of taken the piss in that regard of you know imagine what an american thinks a Swedish person must be like. They're probably dressed in these white robes all the time. And the 
and the narrative device of them being anthropology grads oh, and the, and the so anthropologist good. project being part of the story, I think really zones in on that. Yeah, yeah You know, yeah, the yeah. idea that every American abroad behaves like an anthropologist almost. Um, I, I really fell for that whole anthropology angle when I first saw the film. You know, I really, I thought like, that must be a clue. I must need to use, you know, anthrop anthropological uh, theory to really understand this film fully. Like, it must have something to do with, like, these cultural divisions and divides. It must have something to do with that. And, you know, I really tried to understand the film from a, a perspective of, like, uh, community, um, you know, in terms of what... Uh, definitions of community might be referencing things like Marcel Mao's, like gifting communities, magic communities. They even bring up the idea of taboo. Yes, because even they have taboos. Yeah, which yeah. is like pissing which, on the tree or what? Well, there was something taboo? else that I can't remember. Well, um, one of the harga says, "We respect the incest taboo." That's right. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Although even that has limits, apparently. Well, yes. As we find out later on with the with the oracle. Yeah. So the mm -hmm. they they in in two scenes that are almost back to back, they say we respect the incest taboo, and then they explain that the the oracle of the cult is the product of incest. Mm -hmm. So it's like they they know stuff, but they are maybe just not telling the truth. Right. Or, or the truth is more complicated or something. And so I really tried to understand the film through those, these, these lenses to try and think, like, is, it, is Aster trying to say the U.S. is corrupt and we have broken social order mm -hmm. in, in the contemporary United States? And what we need to do to fix that social order is return to... A return to a previous age of, uh, you know, restoring connectivity. You know, I, I, I'm 90% sure that I've seen a reading of the film on YouTube. I think it might even be Wisecrack did this, and it makes me cringe. And I love Wisecrack, but um, they do a reading of the film that basically says the beginning of the movie where Danny's on her phone and trying to connect with people on through her phone right. is like being criticized by the greater sense of connection that the Harga have, the Horga have mm -hmm. together, where they're able to like hold each other and touch each other physically. So the film is trying to say, get off your phones. Did, did, right. did you, was that what you took from that reading? Uh, from Wisecrack's reading? Uh, no, I might be misremembering it. I'd say I watched that before this and I thought, that does seem awfully simplistic. Now, I don't think that phones are the central point of contention, actually, but I do think that American contemporary society is criticised. But to disagree with the phone thing, I mean, Pelly is showing photos of oh, the yeah. Midsummer Festival on his phone to Danny. Like, so we have clear documentation that, that he takes photos at Midsummer with a yeah. mobile. And we also hear from a female cult member that the kids are watching Austin Powers at one point. I think that the... <laughs> Such a good that joke. Was a great bit. I think Ari Aster is intentionally trying to say, like, don't make any, like, big technology yeah. claims about this. I think it's more about human empathy, balance, relationships. And, and all of those things can be discussed without necessarily looking at the technology question. That's true. I think it, does, it does make... It does have this really... Um, convincing way of, of, of showing that there's nothing necessarily primitive about the mm -hmm. cult. Um, mm -hmm. 
yeah, cause, I mean, the fact that they watch Austin Powers. I mean, I don't know, maybe that does seem impressive. <laughs> that's quite <but> primitive. <laughs> that's advanced. What are you talking about? That's Scottish accent. We haven't, um, even, we haven't even learned how to appreciate Austin Powers yet. So then, <laughs> if the cult isn't primitive, in a sense, what do you think the killing of outsiders means to the Horga? I'm so glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked. Yes. I'm really glad that you asked too, because I think... Um, you go first, Connor, because I have No way. Like, I can't think of what it is now. No, no, no. My, my answer that. is, like, so good right. that it's going to, like, blow everyone else away. So, like, I'm... So you go first, and so I can maybe... <laughs> okay. Get back at you. Okay, low-key, I was hoping that you would go first so that I could get a chance to, like, get my thoughts together. Um, okay, so I, I don't fully have this worked out in my head yet, but basically, um, I think that the, the death thing in the film is the main theme. I... I, for a while, I thought it was to do with community, and then I really tried to like put it through the ringer. I was like, you know, I was thinking, is this meant to be, you know, some sort of reflection on Mao's ideas of like magic in society, reflecting on how they use the drugs in the mm -hmm. the horga? Thinking, you know, there's that scene that's cut from the that was in the trailer, but it was cut from the film of levitation. So I think maybe magic was a theme in the film once upon a time, but it got cut. It's maybe just there is a texture now. A texture. That's a really mm -hmm. nice way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. But then the more I thought about, the more I thought about the movie, the more I kept coming back to death. Okay, it's it really is all about death, and then importantly, rebirth, which I think is the bit that the bit of this puzzle that I still haven't quite figured out yet. Is, wow. Yeah, people aren't talking about that enough. But there's like Danny's rebirth, but also the fact that the cult believe in rebirth. I mm. think the rebirth thing is actually like a meta joke to the Ari Aster cinematic universe. This is my working theory. I'm happy to expand on that in a bit, but... of, like, Rebirth as a director doing their sophomore film? I'll get back to it. I'll, I will get back to it. Okay, but Death in Midsummer as just Midsummer, um, I, I think it's super important, but what is happening is it's less to do with, like, anthropological ideas of death, where you can have... Um, different ideas of death all around the world and I think instead it's about um, ethics. For me the film is like a first year philosophy classroom and I think we've all been there where someone starts talking about ethical moral absolutism and some smart ass in the class will raise their hand and say yeah but there are some things that everyone can just agree are bad. No one in the world thinks that murder is a good thing. You know, and they'll they'll think that that's their slam dunk. You know, mm -hmm, drop mm -hmm. mic. Usually, that person is American. No offense. Um, but then there's then always someone else who you know did sociology as an A level or whatever who's going. No, that's not true. Lots of societies out there in the world have got very complicated views of of death, and you know, e and even if they didn't exist philosophically. It would be the easiest thing, you know, in a, in a logical sense to just say, let's not view death as a bad thing. So I think that that's the thing in the film is that death is not a bad thing to these people. Mm -hmm. That's their ethical system that is happening. So um, what the reason that these outsiders are being killed is that they are fitting into the machine, the natural machine that um, Pele references. He's saying, you know, nature knows instinctively how to keep itself in balance. And I think that that's the, the way the Harga see it, is that these outsiders are just playing their role in this 
this sacrifice, you know, that they are fitting into it uh, the same way as anyone else. So when um, when Mark pisses on the tree and yes. like that upsets the Horga, but at the same time, he then fits into the machine because then the fool. he becomes the fool. That's right. Yeah. So then they flay the fool, you know, um, when, um, the, the researcher takes the picture of the book, you know, that sucks, but then that's, that's his part in the machine. And it could be like a reflection on cinema and how like people all play their parts. But I think it's more about, you know, the central conceit of this film is just what would happen if, there was a society of people that viewed death entirely differently than we view death, you know? So at the beginning of the movie, Danny sees the death of her sister and the death of her parents as this great tragedy, you know, as something to, to really, not, not to mourn, because mourn is something that we do that's very healthy, you know, we have to mourn things, but, you know, instead to... Um, to, to almost feel a kind of guilt about, or a, to, to, to see as a suffering, to see as a personal attack on her in a way, you know, that, that she's like, has to carry the burden of her family dying because she can't even talk about it. You know, it's like, it's something she tries to hide and conceal. But then as the film progresses and she meets the Horga, they see death as something that everyone has to be involved with and is to be celebrated. When we look at the blood eagle with Simon, you know, they have put flowers in his eyes. They've dressed him up in this wonderful way. That's true. Every death has a sort of ritual significance, right? I guess... Two cents. Maybe apart from, apart from Josh's, perhaps, at first. Although it would seem to... It would maybe, yeah. Oh, no, maybe not, though, because he's sort of planted... In they plant sort of way. They, they planted and he has a little sort of rune on his foot. Yeah, and I know what that rune means. So what does that mean? So that rune is made up by Ariaster mm. and it basically means go to come back again. Fascinating. So it's kind of a little like infinity symbol, like a rune a, a rune stylized infinity symbol. Right. And Danny's two runes that are used to describe her and they're on her um they're on the shirt that they make her. Um, Ari Aster said in an interview that basically her runes mean run to get back home. Mm -hmm. You know, you like running away to, to leave on a journey only for the journey to take you back to where you are. And then I also know that in the director's cut, there's a scene that was cut from the theatrical release where a little boy says to Danny, what's brave is going home. Uh, that would have been a bit on the nose, I think. I'm glad that that's not in there, to be honest. <laughs> I think I know the kid. I know the kid that, that would be in that scene. It's, it's, it's weirder that the kid doesn't say anything. You that. have to go to come back home. You must go back home. How can we understand her as going yoga. back home at the end? Is that something that you see as To fitting? herself. Oh, the home within. The home that is within. Oh, Dad. sort of, sort of. I've got a different reading. Dav, you had an understanding of death in the film, right? I think, I think... So the, the only thing that was troubling me was the death of the outsiders for a long time. And mm. I think that's a really, really competent reading that you've done. And I think probably thank you, thank you. a really, um, I think the one that I had was a much more surface level one. And I think, because I was seeing things like you talked about, you know, talking about taboos and it becomes clear that either there are different interpretations of the information that they're being given Inc taboo is an incest. Uh, uh, incest is a taboo, and even we have limits against the very next scene. Someone saying, 
oh, literally, we do practice incest. That's what the oracle is. <laughs> the oracle is a, is, a, is a result of incest. Um, so there was part of me that was maybe looking for a reading that the community isn't as sort of one isn't as much of a one organism as it might appear yeah right so maybe there's sort of um dissenting voices or perhaps there are sort of different interpretations of um the information they're being given so i think that the i think the idea of everyone everyone having a part in everyone everyone having a part to play is a much more engaging one but at first i wanted to believe that there were certain members of the of the cult who um, simply view these people as a threat and didn't think that they had any place other than just to be murdered and then conveniently they can play some part in the, in the ritual later on. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think you're, you're so on the money with that and I think that and at the halfway point of the film there's this tension when they say that the book had gone missing mm -hmm. because... They're lying. Well, are they lying or... Is there some shenanigans going on within the Horga themselves? Because I think there's definitely this feeling that the that the cult is not as, as unified as, as unified as I think they are yeah. at one point. Mm -hmm. um, because it could I, a, a part of me feels like maybe um, there's this character that you can see in the final shots when they're um, doing that mass mourning of the of the burning people mm -hmm. and she's got like a like a red horn it kind of looks like a giant chili pepper but it's not maya it's it's not maya maya's wearing a, like a red dress and red yeah. lipstick yeah and this girl's got like a weird hat on and she's got a cut on her nose oh i didn't notice it's this. like okay. she's been in a fight is yeah. this not the girl who led josh away it might be her yeah, yeah yeah so i i feel like there's like the what we don't really get knowledge of is whatever the fool game is mm -hmm. um it's clearly some violent yeah because you get the idea that she is like romantically interested in josh uh. and then after josh commits the fault of being on the tree it seems that it's mainly the older male members of the cult that are most annoyed about that. And to me, maybe what takes place is them coercing her to lead Josh away so that they can then make him the fool. And I don't know whether that is something she would have been willing to do, like as a younger cult member who actually wanted to sleep with Josh, I think. Yes. Like so I think that there is, sort of yeah, I think that there was like a rebellious act. element to her because her intentions to have sex with Josh, which I'm reading into the film, weren't supported by the cult. You know, she didn't get any kind of like mating yeah. sex, right? So ultimately they use her as a pawn to yeah. lead Josh away because he's angered the elders. Yeah. So there's definitely some like, at least like tension or friction in, in the different members of the cult you could read into it. She yeah. also didn't have permission to breed, remember, because Maya does have permission. Yeah, so, so right, exactly. You have to have permission. You have to have and can you imagine, like, it's a hot summer's day, yeah. you're a young, beautiful Swedish woman, and you don't have permission? Like, <laughs> but I would end up with a cut on my nose for sure. <laughs> I feel like the, um, the, the thing is, though, the cult can disagree. I think that that's kind of what they're right. what they're saying is that like 
again, everybody has their part. And it's almost like transgression within the society is just part of the society. You know, they, they had a uniform already picked out for her. She's not kicked out or cast out. She's not, you know, she's not killed because I don't think death is a punishment in this society, you know, so she's not killed. It's just part of her story that she broke the rules once, you know, and mm -hmm. so she has to wear this weird outfit and she's got a cut in her nose. There's a super dark reading and I, I'm sure I saw this on someone else's website. I wish I had the reference, but there's a super dark reading that the cuts on her nose are actually from Mark. Oh yeah. Okay. And that basically he is just like a jerk and you know, that you can kind of infer that basically he got too rough with her mm -hmm. and also that they did sleep together. And perhaps the Oracle interceded. I don't know. Or, or maybe she she's not allowed to sleep with him. So she let him off just for like some heavy petting in the midsummer sun. He then tried I to force that. it and then the and that's know, why he was the cult interceded to flay him hmm. for for his like sexual transgressions or something but yeah that's not my reading um i did i i wanted to say that one thing about the aster cinematic universe may i oh yeah of course yeah are you gonna I'm, talk I'm about sunlight i'm gonna talk about hereditary yeah well i really want to talk about those sun shadows that appear in hereditary and they Ooh. seem to evoke is it palamon yes Every time I don't remember we this, get, what is that? well, so Palamon is like the the demon god that the cult worships in Hereditary, mm -hmm. and you can see throughout the film glimmer of sun whenever Palamon's energy is around. So when the protagonist is in his classroom and he like smashes his head, I think previous to that he's seen the glimmer of sunlight before his face turns strange you can see it in his bedroom like so we do get these little like clues to like a sort of supernatural entity yeah. and in midsummer those same glimmers take place they shine on maya's face before she leads christian off for the sex ritual so there's this oh. kind of like eerie environmental cohesion with the cult through like light shadows. I am such a Alluding fan. to something bigger than us maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'm... of course in Hereditary, you could probably read that film pretty safely as being, oh, the, the evil forces were actually real. They were actually real. <laughs> yeah, so there's they like, were actually real. You know, in terms of them like worshiping this sun god with the sacrifice at the end, that kind of thing, you know, wow, why are these humans behaving in this way? This is so weird. Well, there is a tiny allusion to there being like something else. I, I, if his third film isn't, um, if his third film isn't similarly to do with like the, um, you know, the cults and gods and humanity and the, you know, the, the potential like crossover between, you know, ancient gods and humans again, like I'll be so upset if he abandons this because like I'm, I've seen all these connections between the two films that I absolutely adore. Um, Heather, you brought up that in the final sacrifice scene of Midsummer there's this body made out of twigs mm -hmm. and i think that the body made out of twigs is the the male in the temple you mean in the temple at yeah, the yeah, end yeah. yeah is is the male um that uh did the the atastupa that right. jumped off the cliff you're right mm -hmm. um when you see the palamon 
uh, statue at the end of Midsummer. It's similarly made out of those twigs. Oh, yeah. And also the little girl in Midsummer makes lots of things out of twigs in the same way. Mm-hmm. And it's just this like little connection. But then that brings us more clearly to the theme. Sorry, you mean the little girl in Hereditary yes. makes things out of twigs? Mm-hmm. Um, but that brings us more clearly to this to a theme of reincarnation in Astor's films that I think is super cool. That's right, because the little girl is actually reincarnated. She's, Palamon. she's got Palamon in her and Palamon doesn't like being in a female host which is why they decapitate her to get Palamon to possess her brother. brother. That's right. Because he's not comfortable in a, being in a, a female body. He's just a dick really, you know, mm-hmm. which is which, which I also love because he's the trickster god so he's just an asswipe. Um, but you have the scent that that theme of reincarnation that's in midsummer and then what you picked up on this time ugh, in hereditary but then what you picked up on this time watching midsummer is that people treat danny as if she's coming home that's right well when you're talking about her runes oh. being a, a coming home a coming home i'm like what are you talking about she's never been there <laughs> <laughs> so it's like now i understand you're reading that danny is one of the horga always has been yeah and always has been and that's why she's the one that tries to speak swedish to them that's why she's she's, the only one that says tak at the beginning she's immediately welcomed by them like they talk about how pretty she is um she's also the main queen like she it turns out that she's the main queen she's kind of like a chosen one she is she is the chosen one you know in her bedroom at at the beginning like she has a lot of like spiritual elements in it i can relate like she's got a lot of plants and uh she has this big tapestry above her bed which connor's borrowed is from a swedish or nordic fairy tale of a little girl with a bear so like it seems that she's been searching in her American context for this like Scandinavian spirituality yeah. mm-hmm. already. It's uh, the um, so that that would the speak bear to king, like the bear king Kalimon. Um, like ancestral memory or like as far as reincarnated memory. Yeah, so she has this kind of like sp- this um, longing for this culture, which she never herself ex- expresses. Like she doesn't say to the guys like, "Oh, I've always wanted to go to Sweden" or anything like that. You know, it's. It's very dormant, but then I feel like once again, that's the kind of point is that nature has a way of balancing itself. It knows how to do it and it doesn't need human consciousness. You know, there's kind of a determinism in in Astor's films, but I don't care. I think it's cool as fuck. I love it. I... I it just work in horror film terms, I think. It does. Yeah. Like, you know, you see that kind of same, like, determinism. There's no escaping our fate kind of thing. Yeah, it's used in um, Cabin in the Woods. Like, mm-hmm. things are so, you know, it stretches the limits of probability so much that it's like, it just becomes fun and playful. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, in a way, like, Aster, you know, Aster is Palimon. You know, he's he's got this, like, little box of people that he gets to play with and do whatever he wants with in his films and mm. and you know makes these like wonderful um you know stretches of the imagination to allow these things to happen i don't know so i'm hoping the third film continues this like these themes of reincarnation and maybe ties them together somehow um i'm personally hoping he does it in a film that is tonally very different yeah, want him to how, go totally different again. Be? Yeah, because yeah. like the beginning of Midsummer is so similar in like color palette. That's true. Yeah. To Hereditary, mm-hmm. I would love the next film to begin 
like very similar to Midsommar, like to have the, those like shocking yellows and blues and white. Yeah. And then to go, I don't know, maybe into like neons or something, like go into color out of space type territory or, or something. Or I don't know. Oh yeah. He needs to do I'll a space movie. By the time, if by the time Aster's third movie comes out, we don't have a name for this trilogy. Do you know what I mean? Aster Cinematic Universe. Cinematic. I had a final question actually. So the Oracle child kind of links back to Hereditary as like a child with yes. quite a deformed and unusual face. So that definitely like builds upon his universe. But in terms of their role in the movie, I struggled to find anything with depth to it. And I feel like maybe they were only present to mislead people in the trailer that it was a horror film mm. and occlude the breakup element, which we get. I mean, do you think that the Oracle child offers anything more within the film? Or do you think they're just there to like symbolically tie up the Aster universe? I don't know. I think I think they serve the Oracle in, in Midsummer serves as a kind of, you know, a figure who is involved in the community, but somehow detached from it, I think. Because you always see the Oracle, you're always shown the Oracle alone. Alone, but observing, mm -hmm. I think. There's this sort of element of, they're a sort of shadow. They're just sort of watching over the, over the, over just whatever happens in the commune. Mm -hmm. um, almost as a sort of, but, but sort of forbidden from actually intervening, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But then I guess they do at one point in the film. But they don't, they're not actually the one to swing the... I'm thinking of the yeah. scene where, where Josh tries to sort of take a picture of the mm -hmm. of the sacred. They're text. still just observing, even when we're in yeah. a played outsider. But I just find that there's not that much more to them, and that's okay. Can I point mm. out that he's Daffy ducking in that scene? Oh, he's not wearing any pants. He wears he wears his hoodie <laughs> and his t-shirt. Daffy that's ducking true. is Donald Duck, and Daffy wears a dress. Get it right. Oh no, Daffy's Daffy the crazy black da one. Daffy doesn't wear anything. Yeah, he's totally naked all the he's time. Totally nude. Daisy Duck. Oh, Daisy! But Donald also doesn't wear trousers. But Donald doesn't wear trousers, but he does wear a shirt. He wears a shirt. It's he's not that Donald long, Ducking. He's not yeah, yeah, Donald yeah, Ducking. Donald yeah, yeah. Ducking. Anyway, Ducking. guys. Daffy Ducking would be no shirt. We've got to wrap this one up. So, God. the Oracle. Just when I got good as well. <laughs> he's he's there for the trailer, or is he adding anything more? What do you think? I I I think he does add something. I think that there's something in Astor's films about um, special, special, special children and the ability to see beyond. I think there are meant to be people in the film that are that are more connected to, you know, the kind of um, the Jungian collective unconscious or, you know, the, those creatures of the dark that really do exist and, and that sometimes permeate into human reality. There are some people out there that are able to see those things. Yeah. Um, I, I think, think that, it, uh, well, well, I just, I think it's, it's kind of unfortunate that Astor chooses uh, physical deformity, you know, or, or even, you know, so physical deformity in Midsummer, and then just kind of, uh, just, a, you know, a distinctive face in uh, Hereditary, mm -hmm. you know, because there's nothing, you know, there's, there's no deformity there. It's just, you know, it, it, it not at all in any way. Um, it, they just have a, a striking, he, he just chose a very striking young actress mm -hmm. to play that part. And, and um, 
you know, so trying to signal with like a physical look, I think is, is a little bit uh, shallow. But again, I think he's very, I think he's a really playful director. And I also think he's just figuring this stuff out. But mm. if he's trying to mislead people with the genre, like it kind of works to like signal one thing. Yeah. Um, and then deliver something else in the film. Like, I kind of think that's what took place. Like, and maybe that speaks to why a lot of people thought it was going to be a much more hotter yeah. affair than it was, a much skater film than it was. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's just part of the joke of it as well, like that he plays on people. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think I think we're in a sort of like post-Guillermo del Toro world now. You know, we know to trust monsters almost. Like, we know that... Yeah, um, we almost know to... to try and relate with them at least yeah yeah the monster's yeah. probably not going to be the bad guy yeah yeah awesome the monster's probably not the bad guy yeah. uh i think that's it 500 yeah. days of midsummer um i had a quick point that i, I wanted same. to throw in um so thank you to everybody that watched the show last week um really really great that people are taking the time to listen to our little podcast it means the world to me at any rate i don't know if you guys care i hate that people listen to this i'm ambivalent about it <laughs> it means the world to me um we got a really great comment from uh my good friend graham uh who pointed out that there are actually a a lot of reasons why you would compare the creation of Perfect Blue to Walt Disney, that the um, the Japanese animation um, structures that were in place uh, in in that period were, um, or, or post-war Japan, were actually very similar and adopted from the Disney Corporation. So um, those, that comment that I used, that it seemed kind of ridiculous to make the Hitchcock meets Disney comparison, mm -hmm. um, actually it made, it made a but lot I of thought sense. Mimi Mim looked like... Mima? Cinder Mima looked like Cinderella characters, so well, apparently there's a reason for that. Yeah, apparently they were cool. we, they were yeah, adopting the Disney style. Instincts, I think man. if we get enough Got of it. these corrections, we need to actually have a correction correction section at the very end. That would be quite cool. Well, that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping people will hoping, continue yeah, to yeah, tell us about all the things that we we tell screw me up. off. Yeah, it. exactly. I don't like to correct myself. I'm really happy that someone will do it for me. Um, Thank you, Graham. Amazing. So, do we have any idea what's coming up um, next week? Well, so I'm choosing the film next week. I'm wondering whether it should be Firewalk with me. I think so. I'd really I would enjoy love that. For it to be Firewalk with me. I it's one of my favorite movies. I don't know that I want to touch it. In case it's ruined. I'll touch it. But since we now live in a Lynchian universe, yeah. 2020 so. is is Lynch's year for sure. Maybe that's the one then. Maybe it's going to be I Firewalk. I think it's time. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Okay. See you guys next week. See you next week. Thanks very much guys. Bye.